Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host Georgia and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks and refer to the organisations in the show notes below. Today's episode features Dr Georgina Capone or George, as I've come to know her. George is a psychologist and a boxer who's brought her two worlds together to create the Warrior Women Program, a trauma-informed boxing program for women in Devon in the UK. I know you can already tell from that intro that you're going to love this episode, and you will, but really quickly, before you get started, I want to bring your awareness to the 16 Days of Activism. 16 Days of Activism starts on November 25th and runs for 16 days until December 10th. And we will be running a number of events during the 16 days. So if you're not already, either subscribe to our mailing list, which you can do via the Say Hi button on our website, or following us on Instagram, which is at ConsciousCombat.club. Please go ahead and do that so you can get all the updates about the special events that we're going to be running. I know you're going to want to make sure you're up to date with those. Um, In the meantime, I'll shut up and let's get into the episode. All right. So, Georgina, can you tell me about the Warrior Women program to start us? (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about the Warrior Women program. Yeah, so excited. So, um, yeah, where to start, really? So, I've just um, run the first class. Um, The project is all about empowering women who've been through domestic violence um, to feel confident in their own body, to feel safe in their body, um, and to be able to set boundaries, to be able to say no. Um, it's a kind of passion that's really, and something that's really close to, to my heart. Um, and it's all about doing that through boxing, non-contact, um, basic boxing moves uh yeah and we're at the beginning of a journey and it feels so exciting to know where it's going to go can you describe your first class both like how it went but also what was the content of the session yeah so um so the first class was um so obviously it's in Biddeford I'm, I'm in North Devon and I was running it with my colleague Leslie who's there providing emotional support so I'm there as coach um and we had some ladies come from encompass so that's a local charity that support vulnerable people and within that um there are ladies accessing our project from their brave spaces projects and that's women who have been who've experienced trauma and domestic violence um so we had four ladies from their charity um and they came and the energy in the room was just amazing obviously there was a lot of anxiety at the beginning um you know it's really scary and I was really hope it feels kind of okay and not too cringy to say proud of these women who have like been through such vulnerable you know and, and difficult experiences feeling so vulnerable coming to the class um but had come and then not only had they come and they were dealing with their anxiety you know they're being so supportive of each other um in the class and I think that for me that was one of the loveliest things to see to see these women who without having to talk about their backgrounds, knowing that they've had those similar or, you know, come from difficult experiences and that kind of sense of kind of connection and understanding between them all and that support was just a beautiful thing, really. Um, 
So in the class, what we did in the first class and what we're doing throughout the, the six classes in the programme um, is kind of basic boxing skills. Um, so we start with a bit of a check-in. Um, we did start a bit in the first session, we're thinking about kind of rules for the programme as well, kind of a group agreement, we kind of called it, um, to think about how to keep and set the space and to feel safe. Um, and the ladies actually came up with some really, really good things, actually. One of the things that I really liked, actually, which I think was really important for lots of the women was not talking or focusing on people's bodies in the room or making comments about that. And I thought that was really important to talk about. So having that space to negotiate how we use it, how we use this, this time um, together felt really important. Um, and then we went on to jab, stance and guard, um, mixed with a bit of grounding for the rest of the session. Um, but I think, to be honest, that the ladies, most of all, and what was a joy to see was just them smashing the crap out of the punch bags at the end. <laughs> they were just absolutely um, ready to just go for it. Um, so they've got their kind of stance, guard and jab down and they were just wanted to go, just wanted to go hard on the bags. Um, and they definitely did. Um, so I think they'd definitely like to do more of that. And it's it's very much a learning curve for me as I'm starting the programme. I'm really lucky to have Leslie um, supporting me because I've worked with Leslie in my NHS job. We've actually run groups together and we've got a really good working relationship where we can give each other really good feedback. Um, and personally, you know, I really need that. This is a new programme. It's really helpful to have someone objective there who can say this was working, this wasn't working, let's try this next time. Um, because like I was saying before, I guess it, you know, it's a bit of a journey and it's it's an adventure. And it's really, it's really cool to just explore kind of what works in the space and what the ladies are finding most helpful. Because there's all sorts of things that you could do in that space. Knowing how long to try the grounding exercises for people as well. You know, it's all a bit of a balance and you've got to work with what you've got in the room. But I think that was something that was most exciting for me in the class actually quite anxiety provoking at the same time <laughs> because you've got to just you don't know what's quite what's going to happen you've got your lesson plan um, but you've got to work with what's in the room but I think I think that's what that's what keeps it exciting um and interesting this kind of work yeah 100 percent. and I love that you have someone there not only to give you feedback but also for support right like the importance of being able to debrief as a facilitator in spaces like this is so critical and I think something that we're very quick to overlook because we don't think about how also we might be impacted as facilitators running these programs um and you know sessions vary a lot some sessions you walk away feeling like super uplifted and everyone smashed it and you're so proud and then other sessions like someone might have been having a bad day or multiple people might have been having a bad day things can come up even just the energy in the room can be really heavy and mm -hmm. so thinking about how we can work through that um, as the facilitators is really important and I think a big part of that is having a container for being able to debrief whether that's mm -hmm. a team that you refer back to your own psychologist you know other therapists that you work with I, but I think the best case scenario is that there's another person there who's seen it firsthand um, you know it's very easy then to talk about you know oh, here's what I'm feeling around what happened how are you feeling about that and how can we you know best look after ourselves mm. to go into the next session next week or however frequently you're running classes that is so true and I wonder how much people prioritize that because to be honest when I was setting this up I didn't I, I didn't really think so much about um, using that space 
for me, as well as thinking about the practical stuff of debriefing, planning what to do differently next time, actually the emotional impacts of, of running the class. And that's strange because, you know, in my work, I have to have clinical supervision as a psychologist. We have to, it's like our bread and butter. We have a minimum of an hour a month um, to process what we do. But actually, it's just as important doing work like this, isn't it? And for me, it makes sense that it's so important. And I remember talking to one of the coaches at the Shape Your Life programme um, on Zoom mm -hmm. over in Canada when they were giving me a bit of advice when I was networking, trying to think, oh, how on earth do I go about setting up a, pro a project like this? I and mean, she was saying the value of having that having that space to debrief after about what was going on in the room, kind of, what, how were people feeling? What what does that say about what they need? How do we support them next time? Or you know, what was going on for us? What was what was difficult? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know, like that can come in in many forms as well too. Like I say, we won't always have access to a second facilitator depending on the situation. Um, just knowing like, who you can call within your team and say like, hey, do you have space at the moment? for me to just share what I'm feeling um, and then talking through that with somebody is so, so valuable. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious as well as to some of your insights. You've got a particularly unique lens, I think, having come through psychology um, and particularly psychology through the NHS, which my understanding is kind of that that is through black like, hospitals. Is that is that right? I, I really don't know enough about the UK health system. In terms of kind of like the training that you go through? Oh, kind of work that you do? Like you've seen clients in hospitals, is it outpatients? Is it like just working in a clinic? So you can work in all sorts of services, basically. Mm -hmm. There's different types of like psychologists. So I trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, and you get training placements with children, with adults in learning disability services. Um, so you could literally work in all kinds of services, really, um, all the way up along the lifespan from children to older adults. Um, mm -hmm. I've chosen to work in adult services. I started off working in specialist forensic adult services. So that's for people um, who've committed offences um, that, that are deemed to be linked to mental health difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, so I started off in, um, I, I, had my, I had my specialist placement in a criminal, oh God, what was it called? It's a long, long name, Criminal Justice Liaison Diversion, Diversion Service. Um, and that was, yeah, getting people um, that are kind of regularly committing offences and trying to steer them out of the justice system, giving them that earlier intervention with mental health. And mm. that was really interesting. My first job then was in a low secure hospital, um, forensic hospital. Um, so I, and I did quite a bit of inpatient work. I did a good couple of years um, before I then went into adult mental health in the community, and that's where I am now. Um, I've had a bit of a journey, but I've stuck with adult. Um, and I think for me, when I was in hospital, there's things that I really miss about the hospital work. There was that real sense of community and connection, which I think you know links me back to like the coaching and the the groups. Um, there's something really nice for all of us as humans. We need that kind of sense of like community and connection um, and you get that with a team that you work in in a hospital you go through so much together you support each other there's a very heavy impact at times the emotional impact of the work like we were talking about earlier um, but there was also a stagnancy um, I think particularly working in forensic services um, there was a lot of pathology around mental health difficulties and I was starting to realize how much it was grating on me and jarring me with it just not fitting with my values 
Um, and as I started to kind of build my experience and have time as a psychologist, I guess, I'm only just really starting to understand the kind of psychologist I want to be um, and who I am and how that fits with my values. And this has been my journey through into movement, actually, where for me, movement has always been a really big part of my life. It's something I'm really passionate about. I think movement in all forms to kind of gymming it up, fitness, to dance, to theatre has so much to offer um, in terms of how we kind of process feelings um, and how we feel good about ourselves. Um, and so I started kind of gradually leaning more and more towards that kind of in my work. Um, and I've gone from being a very kind of cognitive psychologist and kind of very much kind of working cognitively, intellectually with people to being really interested in working emotionally and with the body. Um, and it's taken me all the way on this um, twists and turns in my journey to, to boxing. Um, and I finally feel like I'm getting to the place where um, that feels kind of genuine for me. Um, because what I really like, I think what I'm trying to say is what I really like about the movement stuff and how it sits so differently with um, how mental health is kind of understood in like back in the day when I was in forensic services is it's all about the nervous system isn't it and that for me that just makes so much sense like it's backed up by science and and it is really empowering for people the whole narrative and story around how we think about mental health well-being or mental health difficulties with movement um it's all about the body and the nervous system having very natural but difficult responses at times to stress. Um, and while that's difficult for people, there are ways to empower them and support themselves to use their body to move through those difficult reactions and take control back, I guess. And when we feel more in control, we feel safe, right? Whereas I think what I was really noticing, it was really difficult for me because um, I do care a lot. I guess that's why I'm in this job. Um, being working in hospitals and seeing people so disempowered by these um, labels at times. Diagnosis, don't get me wrong, has a place, but sometimes the way that they were used, particularly in forensic institutions, it was almost like um, a label to say, this person will never get better. And sometimes people would internalize those labels. You know, you've got labels like treatment resistant psychosis or something when, they, when medication won't work for someone. Um, and I think it's I love how movement um, and the kind of recovery kind of story around it that is so much more empowering gives gives people their power back, I guess, and starts to put it back into their hands rather than in mental health services hands or professionals hands, which can be really disempowering for people. Yeah, absolutely. I went on a <laughs> I loved that tangent. I loved that tangent. And there's so many like little pieces of that, that that I want to highlight. But I think like the really important underpinning, right, is that a lot of people um just don't have emotion regulation skills, right? And that manifests in lots of different ways. Um, and the way that we learn skills can be impacted by our experiences significantly. Right? So when we think about trauma, we think about the myriad of ways that that shows up in people's lives in the way that it can disrupt their ability to regulate their nervous system and to regulate their emotions. Um, and we might in some settings then call that symptoms and try and cluster them, you know, based on statistics or whatever we're basing it on, um, as in the DSM. But, you know, a cluster of symptoms that we then say, oh, okay, this person has this condition. Um, and like you say, that either means they're 
pigeonholed into a box that they're, they're going to be told you're going to need this medication for the rest of your life you're going to you know need treatment for the rest of your life you're always going to live with this or um just them thinking that there's a problem with them and not actually giving them the autonomy and the power to be able to change it mm -hmm. um like i'm all for diagnoses and finding out what's wrong if that then gives us something that we can do about it mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like if i if i know that somebody has a genetic condition or well, i'm not a doctor but you know if we, if we knew that somebody had a specific genetic condition which led to you know a gene being expressed in a certain way that we could treat with the medication we'd be really happy to have that diagnosis because it means oh okay now we know which medication is going to help that person to live a significantly better quality of life mm -hmm. um, it might be okay we've diagnosed this person as having diabetes we're going to take diet and exercise interventions now to help them control their blood sugars we now have a pathway to what we're going to do next um and sometimes when we have a diagnosis that can lead people to a pathway to what to do next and i know there, there are loads of different treatments that work particularly when there's a really strong um client and practitioner relationship and trust um and when you get a significant buy-in from the person who really believes that this type of therapeutic model is going to work for them, then mm -hmm. there can be value in it. But when we're diagnosing for diagnosis sake and we don't have an action plan, mm -hmm. um, that's really problematic. And I love that there are so many people like you um, who are very action-oriented, right? I'm super action-oriented. <laughs> My question is, well, so what? Like, if you're telling me this, then so what? Like, so what does that tell us that's going to be helpful? What action are we then going to take as a result of that? Mm -hmm. um, if we don't have an answer to that, then maybe we need to come back a couple of steps and say, okay, where else can we think that we can take action that's going to make a meaningful impact in this person's life? Because that's the whole point. It's living with, yeah, living with, um, you know, what you've got, the bodies that we have um, mm -hmm. and how to do that. Um, I guess like in, in the best way for us but I think oh as always and I totally agree with what you're saying it's the so what isn't it okay so if you're gonna if I'm gonna understand my difficulties this way how is this gonna help me and for me it's the key is that what would give that person a helpful understanding that empowers them to be able to do something with with what they've got how to work with the difficulties not just the difficulties and using the strengths that they've got as well to to work with those difficulties i think sometimes we don't always highlight enough about what is working well for people what strengths do you come with what resources do you have because people generally have a lot but by the time they come into mental health services or at least nhs mental health services um they'll have had things will have had to have been pretty bad for a long time so people have lost sight of the good times and the strengths that they have or the person that they used to be so for me what I try and do and it's very much in line with kind of I guess my values and how I work is not invalidating people's distress or like you know their feelings far from it but also getting a balance of you know what 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 do you bring to the table outside of your diagnosis you know tell me about who else you are as a person yes I love that and I mean the fact that that person is alive and seeing you today means they've got some significant skills, right? Um, whatever you've done has helped you get to this point that you're at now. And we think about things like dissociation, like hypervigilance, you know, all of these could be really seen as skills that have been super, super protective. Um, whether it was at a, a particular point in that person's life or for several points or for a time period, 
nothing is so black and white as to say that's disruptive and this is a positive thing as well too in different contexts skills have different meaning and so obviously your body's super adaptive otherwise it wouldn't have changed in all of these ways that it did initially to protect you right and how amazing is that that the, the body does all of these things um and i think for me and i could go on a big rant about this so i, I won't but <laughs> like, I, I am becoming more and more aware of how much um our lives and the way that we live are driving is driving us crazy but who's talking about that you know where's capitalism in the dsm can we diagnose the way we're living <laughs> rather than the people <laughs> and the expectations we have of people in this world um and what that's doing you know um there's this guy i follow on instagram called mark walsh don't know if you've looked yeah. at him. Oh, I love him. He's brilliant. Um, he's I like him. He just says it how it is. Um, and he put this post up the other day about, you know, oh, I feel crap. Why is that? Well, how about we look at how we're living? And yeah, it's just, it's so true. And um, I forgot where I was going with that. But it, yeah, there's just something about just taking that wider lens of let's let's think about how we're living and also take power back in, in that way where we can with changing things. Like for me, this big move that I made, which some of my friends I think thought was probably a bit crazy, like moving from a city to North Devon, which is like totally rural, but it's by the sea. But for me, it was a big part of my mental well-being and changing my life to slow down and get off, mm -hmm. the, get out of the rat race and the hamster wheel. Because I don't think we always recognise or think about that um, with mental health and definitely not enough in mental health services um, and a big thing behind the warrior women project as well um was through going through um my own therapy which i personally believe is yeah well it's helped me grow so much but also made me a better psychologist as well i feel like if you're gonna therapy other people you've really got to have your own therapy I'm, I'm a big i'm a big believer in that um but i became so so aware of um society in terms of kind of uh gender kind of socialization male and female roles um, and what uh, what an influence that can play kind of in terms of mental health difficulties, but particularly mental health difficulties for women um, and the trauma they can be vulnerable to experiencing. Um, and men in a, in a similar but very different way. You know, there's all this toxic masculinity stuff too, isn't there? But for me, thinking particularly for women, you know, how difficult it can be to be assertive. And if you are assertive, how people feel about that um mm -hmm. and it feels like you know you in the sometimes as a woman you can be stuck between a rock and a hard place where um you know if you're if you're passive well you're not really speaking up for yourself but if you're assertive then you're you're being bossy or you're you're too emotional um yeah i think treading that line can be is and still is really difficult absolutely and like you say right boxing and and i think lots of movement-based programs particular martial arts programs we're biased um chuck up for nobody listening to this podcast um are really powerful in that space because we're not just telling people you know be assertive stand up for yourself and if someone calls you bossy ignore it because that again it's just like such an easy thing to say and such a harder thing to do when you've got no experiences of having done that ever mm -hmm. right and the the situations where we're telling people here is when you know, you might like to do 
to stand up for yourself is like at work, to your boss, to your family, like to the people where we are so vulnerable. These people have power and control. They have the capacity to, you know, take away our livelihoods, take away our connection. You know, they are like the most terrifying people to practice setting boundaries and being assertive to. And yet that's what we tell people to go ahead and do when they've got no physical practice, no embodied practice of ever having done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the and I think what can be really difficult as well when you've had um very difficult experiences where you've asserted yourself in the past and when that's not been received very well, how triggering it can be when you start mm-hmm. to assert yourself again and the kind of emotional backlash that you can get from that, even if no one says anything, like the the guilt, um, and I guess the inner critic for a lot for a lot of us, like ramping up, like, oh you did something wrong there. Um and yeah, so preparing people for that, it's a process, isn't it? It's not, a, oh, right, I've learned what to say, so I'll just go around and say it now because I've learned assertive language. It's, okay, well, how do I emotionally um, deal with this when I'm setting boundaries? How do I deal with other people's emotions and my own? Yeah, absolutely. It's like akin to being like, oh, I've watched The Karate Kid. I'm going to go step in the ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um let's touch back to you a bit now so when did you get into boxing what brought you into boxing and what was that experience like for you oh wow um so the first time i boxed was um and i think i only went once and i did really enjoy it but i was just too shy um i i went when i was a teenager i think and i really wish that i'd stuck at it this is back when i was in nottingham and I did think at the time, oh, like, I think I could get a lot out of this, but I was just too shy. Um, and I'd always had a lot of anger as a child. And because of my mum and dad kind of had gone through a divorce and everything, my dad had his own stuff going on. He was actually quite abusive. Um, and I had a lot of unexpressed anger that I wasn't aware of um, as a child. And it was all coming out. So I wish I'd have kind of stuck, stuck at that boxing. I kind of had my own journey with it carried on with life kind of put my head down got into training got into being a psychologist um and was so focused on other people and other people's Mm -hmm. difficulties I kind of left all of my stuff behind fast forward moved to North Devon um ended up going through a breakup uh, which you know you know these things happen and we sadly weren't right for each other um and I had a bit of space I guess for the first time in ages to really focus on me um I don't know how or why like I'd been trying looking at martial arts stuff for a while since I'd been down here um and I thought do you know what I'm just going to try boxing um went to a local boxing class ended up knowing a couple of people from my local gym that were there ended up having a laugh and then I carried on a couple of weeks later they were training people for the charity fight um early next year and I got roped into doing it, didn't I? So, you know, not only had I just started like messing around and boxing, oh no, all of a sudden I'm gonna be fighting. Um <laughs> so in a few months, within a few months, and I was really focused, and I guess through the breakup and all the stuff that I was processing, it gave me a real focus, and not just a focus, but a group and community of really caring, supportive people. There's something about just being around good energy, I think, sometimes, isn't there? Like, I do sound more and more hippie since I moved down here, but it is so true. <laughs> you feel it when you're around good energy. Whenever I've been in kind of fitness kind of classes and stuff, it just charges me back up. 
the boxing was exactly the same. So it gave me that focus, that discipline, that connection. I just really needed it at the time because I've moved down here. I've met people and I've, I've made some friends, but not like my close connections back home. Um, and I just got into it. And I remember the first time that I punched one of the pads um, and this release that started happening in my body, like I was just shaking, but it wasn't a, oh, I'm really scared shaking. It was a, oh, I'm feeling powerful, like shaking. Um, and it was like coursing through my body. Something had woken up as the only way that I could kind of use words to kind of describe it. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me think of that. Is it Peter Levine? Like, I sound like I'm name dropping, but it just really makes me think of his book, Awaking the Tiger or something. It did, I yes. can see why he named it that, because it did feel like that in, in my body. Um, and then I realized like, oh, I need to keep doing this actually. Um, I think this is really important for me. Um, and one of the things that I noticed the more I was doing it, I noticed like how much more confident I was in other areas of my life and not just in classes, like at work. Um, I was asserting myself more, I was taking up more space in meetings. I was disagreeing with people and that was really different. I was being me, I was starting to be more genuine. And I feel like I had kind of just woken up. It was really, really strange, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I thought, I just need more of this in my life. And I think what boxing really allowed me to do, um, which I'd kind of got there, which is, this is really interesting, like going through this process as a psychologist, my therapy helped me intellectually understand what I needed to do. Um, and we did do some like experiential emotion focus work and that was all helpful. But I think what I really needed to do was find a practice that helped me do that and work through that with my body. And boxing really allowed me to connect with the anger that I had suppressed, um, that stopped me from being me. Um, and it was kind of like the lock and the key, like I'd found the key. Um, and then I just went with it. Um, so now um, I try and get to boxing most weeks. Um, after the charity fight, I did have a bit of time off. Um, I did I did another sparring match with some amazing ladies at um, a local gym um, and realized that I didn't want to spar anymore <laughs> because I got lucky with my charity bike, so I've got long arms and that was enough for me. I just needed to do one spar session and that, <laughs> that was fine. Um, but it was more about kind of just the movement that felt so empowering, I thought it was really good for me. And it just made me think after all the kind of stuff it had given me, I thought, I want to share this with other people like, I feel like this is what I need to do. I'd had a bit of life coaching with this amazing yoga teacher down here, um, oh, Vienna Law. Um, I was in a timeline of my life. Um, and we were, I was just kind of at a place where I was thinking, what do I want to do? I don't even know if I want to be a psychologist anymore. And then boxing gave me this kind of pathway to think about how I could join the two um, and still enjoy my job and not have to feel like I've thrown away 10 years of my life doing all this training to be a psychologist I can make it work for me I can be me in my job fancy that <laughs> what <laughs> what absolutely not <laughs> yeah so um boxing gave me permission to be me to show up um and I think it wasn't it was about the movement but there was something so lovely and powerful about the movement and also being around a group of people that encouraged me to do that like it's that double whammy I think of like using your body being able to be expressive but having people that around you that want you to do that and encouraging you to do that 
both of those things were, were really powerful and which led me to yeah randomly within a year this all happened trained to be a boxing coach um in just basic non-contact boxing skills and use that to set up a program um to empower women my friend leslie who i talked about earlier um a colleague of mine um uh linked me up with the women's charity encompass that she used to work with previously they were really interested in the idea and it just took off from there um and i just can't believe how it has taken off but i think the speed and the momentum with kind of what's going on and how good it feels is can only be a sign that this is right um and i think you know when i think about all the stuff i've been doing it is a lot of work but it doesn't feel like that and you know when you enjoy something you're on the right track when it doesn't feel like a, a chore i guess Yes, absolutely. And I want to hover quickly over this idea around doing doing work in psychology and intellectually understanding be like how you're processing emotions, everything that's going on and bringing that into the martial arts space. Because I think, and, and this is quite complex and it's not super binary either, like it's not so black and white as to say one is good and one is bad. But one comment that I do get a bit is around the idea that all well, martial arts is escapism, right? Mm. And I think that can be really true mm. in certain cases. You know, for example, um, we just saw a lot in the media, Alexander Volkanovsky, who's the a UFC champion and he just took a fight and he was talking about how badly for his mental health he needed to be taking a fight and when he doesn't have a fight he's not okay right mm -hmm. and I know he's a sports psychologist and I don't want to distance diagnose him he's just an example that I would give and we've had so many examples of people who say that you know unless they've got their training then they're not okay um and one thing that was really like really shocking to me was when my psychologist first said that like you know you're not actually processing your emotions when you use exercise as a way to escape from what's happening. Mm. And that can be super powerful depending on what's going on. Sometimes you do just need an escape, uh, you know, and escaping via scrolling social media versus escaping via going and doing a martial arts class. I also think are very different things. Mm. But again, another level to that, which is when you're not just escaping, you're actually experiencing an embodied process of releasing anger or engaging with your body being present in your body um practicing grounding skills setting boundaries like that again is something that i think is at another level right it's 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 even more different to already i think there is benefit to escapism but again what happens when you can't escape what happens when you retire what happens when you get injured what happens when you get older and your training has to wind down how do you then cope with that mm -hmm. and that's why the trauma-informed aspect of the trauma-informed martial arts is important too because we're not just saying we're going to try and and not do harm but get you into the space where you can do escapism there's also themes that we're threading through that whether that is being assertive setting boundaries being in your body experiencing your body as something other than an object to change like all of these things that have um i think really strong impacts on people mm -hmm yeah yeah and the, the question for me was remind you were saying about whether how you got into boxing um yeah what you liked about it which i think we covered off on um i think you kind of answered all of my question 
I just got so lost in your answer that I've almost already forgotten what I was asking you as well. But, but I, think I think what you said was really important about um, you were making me think about that balance between mm -hmm. distraction and sitting with your feelings. Um, it's a fine line, isn't it? And it's something I've had to really manage myself. Um, it can be sneaky um, mm -hmm. distraction. You think you're doing something good for yourself and then you think, oh no, I'm too busy again. I'm not feeling. Slow down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and it's really difficult, isn't it? Because I guess for me, I've been trying to find that balance. And I think in a way, like when I launched myself into boxing to process the breakup and everything that was going on, it was a welcome bit of distraction. Mm -hmm. Um and there was something that I kind of needed about it at that time. Um, and uh, and I think it, it can, distraction is good, right? It's just how often it happens, isn't it? Um, and I always think as well, like you, we can, it's always the intention you bring to something, isn't it? You could literally use anything as a distraction if you wanted to. And I'm linking back to what you're saying about trauma-informed martial arts, our, the intention behind the class is different to what it might be if you were training for a fight in in your standard you know your mainstream boxing gym the intention behind your practice is very different isn't it absolutely yeah and there's so many variations on what that can look like as well too and again like i'm not trying to say this like a right and a wrong is a binary good bad um i think it is important to have an awareness of that so that we don't mindlessly slip into numbing and distraction um, especially because like fighting is a great example, right? Where for some people that is what it is, is I want to always have something that I'm preparing for 10 weeks to prepare for this event. And that becomes the whole center of my world. Everything that I do, eating, sleeping, seeing people, training, recovering, 100% of my time becomes dedicated to that and that I won't have to deal with anything else. Um, and then once I finish that one, I want to recover and then I want to go on to the next one so that I always have something in the forwards that in, in the future that I'm looking mm. forward to that then can consume everything. And it's so sneaky too because it's not insignificant to take a fight. Like it's scary. You're going into the ring. You're going to get potentially injured. Um, you're doing a sport where some, but the other person is trying to hurt you. And so it spikes a lot of adrenaline. It really does pull your brain in a way where it's not just that it's like, oh, I have a deadline for this work thing or this assignment or whatever, which is also like stressful as well in its own way. But there's, there's a very specific flavor to it that is all encompassing. Um, and at the end of the day, what do you do when you don't have that anymore? And I think certain people, like I've been in that mode at certain points of my life as well too, where you just, it's very easy to blank out everything else yeah. to focus on this one thing, but we're whole people and we have so many different versions of ourselves that we want to keep working within. And by all means, like, you know, fighting can be your whole life um, if that's what you really want. But I think if you ask most people, like, would you really want for being a fighter to be your only identity once you're 50 and you can't fight anymore? You can't do it, but it's your only identity. Do you think you'll be fulfilled and happy? It's yeah, yeah. a leading question, but it, um, yeah. it's really what interesting to talk about. 
what you're saying is really making me think, Georgia, it's so interesting. Um, and I think in a way I can relate a bit, you know, I'm not saying it's the same thing for fighters, but I invested 10 years roundabout training to be a psychologist. And for mm -hmm. me, I know other people have been through the same journey. I think for, because you have to be so dedicated, you can be really vulnerable to making it your whole life, your whole identity. Um, and I did. And I think for a long time, up until very recently, my job has meant far too much to me. Like it has been me. This, it's like my identity. And in a way, it's had to have been for me to get through that training. Um, but what's been really important for me, and I'm still on a journey with it, is thinking about who I am outside of it, which, you know, the coaching is a massive part of that. Um, but not being so driven by, like, achievement anymore, thinking about my other needs. Um, I am trying, <laughs> and I'm a work in progress, to slow down a bit more be outside more spend more time and be present with my friends and my family um rather than just being like drive 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 um and i love being busy i am passionate i have a lot of energy so i will always err towards that side um but i think what kind of anchors me more now is having that that time and that connection like outside but also to the people that really matter to me just being present because life's so short, isn't it? Um, and as we get older, you know, friends have families. It's so hard to have that time together. And it just makes me really value it and want to have those those times and those opportunities to to do that. And when you're so busy and you're filling your time, it's so easy to let that slide. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like neglecting yourself a bit, aren't you? I think it can be so easy back to the way that we live. It can be very easy to neglect ourselves. The society that we live in rewards us so much for achievement and tries to say that we are only meaningful human beings if we're achieving something. When actually we can just be. It's still very uncomfortable for me to say that, actually, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. And it rest, rest, rest is just so important. Yes, I just want to just like pause to let that sink in for everybody. Um, it's probably not a new concept to anyone. More maybe it is. And if it is, then like, welcome to this podcast. Um, we're basically all on this journey of trying to be you know, human beings instead of human doings. Um, now, your journey, let's come back to it. We're talking about you got into boxing, you started to design a program. I'd be amiss if I didn't invite you to talk about the experience of working with us in the Conscious Teacher Training or the co Conscious Coaching course um, that we ran here at the Conscious Combat Club. So what was that experience like? How did that influence your program design? Can you speak a bit to it? Yeah, um, I feel like I couldn't really have done it without it. I need I needed that support. Coming to this as a psychologist, you know, I go to the gym a lot, but I've never run a fitness class. <laughs> um, and, and moving over to thinking in that way, I needed that kind of support and step-by-step -step process, which I feel like the programme gave me. Um, and I think, you know, I, I kind of got the whole trauma-informed kind of principles because we, we kind of do that at work. It's our bread and butter but translating it into a martial arts environment and thinking about what that looks like was really helpful and important. Now, even down to, you know, I use grounding strategies at work, but thinking about what would work with people in that kind of class and how you deliver it, because how you deliver it in that kind of environment is probably quite different to like how you're delivering it in more of like a formal therapy 
setting. And I think as well, it's probably just that confidence and reassurance of being able to see how someone else has run something like this successfully. Um, I think I really got a lot from the lesson planning in particular, because for me, it was that practical thing about just not knowing really where to start with content of planning, like my boxing sessions. I'd obviously done my coaching, um, uh, training and assessment, but that was standard coaching. It wasn't a, right, how do I then apply this in a trauma-informed way? Um, so it was so helpful to have that space, not just from the teaching side of it, but also the community attached to it, which I often forget to kind of post in when I'm asking questions. But when I do, you know, and people have put some helpful stuff on there, I'm sharing resources um, and how you um, would deal with particular issues coming up. Um, but I think, yeah, the lesson plan, the lesson planning was really helpful. And thinking about how to um, introduce kind of a bit of fun into the sessions as well, because I think the last thing I wanted was it to end up feeling quite serious and dry. Mm. And, and wanting to have that variety within the classes as well, with different exercises, um, whether it's kind of grounding or um, the kind of mixing between the cardio um, and the grounding in like the second half of the session after you've taught some skills in, in the first half. It just gave me that nice kind of structure, really, and confidence to think, okay, I've got, an, I can go into a class and I've got a bit of an idea about what I can do, um, and that makes me feel confident and confident and reassured enough to give it a go. I guess, yes, yeah. So it that was so so helpful. And the only last, I think, the last the last session that I haven't yet watched is the referral one, which I am looking forward to watching as well because. Now I'll be um, hopefully in the future expanding, I would love to, and stepping out of um, the current funding I, I'm being given, been lucky enough to be given by Encompass for their ladies. Um, I would be looking forward to thinking about how to work with um, and find other referral networks um, to expand as well. Because there's the, there's the coaching side, there's the trauma-informed and applying that to the to the, mar to the martial arts and the coaching and then there's the business side um so like three different sets of skills really and I think that is that is a lot to kind of get your head around when you're setting up a course like this so just having that really thought through step-by-step -step process with the modules um was really helpful in being able to take the project from an idea into like an actual reality um and actually all the business stuff on the in your slides as well has been really helpful um you know with things like thinking about okay how am i going to write a summary that i can send to referrers and also give give to potential um clients you know my leaflet and stuff like that really hard to whittle down and think about content um but that all of that was really really helpful too awesome and it comes back to what we said at the start right about being like so what um and that was the thing that i found frustrating in doing other trauma-informed movement programs so i was like yes this information's awesome it's really resonating like i love it i'm learning so much but i don't know how to get from that to implementing it in a program like actually tell me the specifics of you know 
duration, repetitions, program design, all of the, the decisions that I'm actually going to need to make. And when it comes from being like this intellectual concept into something that's very tangible, and when you don't have a, a space to think about what are the decisions that I want to make, as in like, okay, how many people how long is the program going to run for? Is it going to be a six-week course? Is it going to be an ongoing course? What like type of business model do I want to use? What's appropriate to the type of population that I'm working with? Who else do I need to bring into the space? Like all of these questions um, are really important and I think can get missed in this space where we're so great at talking about like okay what is safety what does that mean why is it important for trauma survivors what are all of the different factors that influence people you know how does their socioeconomic status and how does race and how does gender and how does all of that intersect um into creating somebody's experience but i think it can become all very wishy-washy um and that's one of my favorite things about uh, our team is that some of our team are so great at that part and i'm very like okay, but so what? Like, what, what does that actually mean for us then as practitioners? Or I'll be like, okay, so what I'm hearing you say is this. If I translate that into something practical, am I going to change my program by doing one, two, three, four things? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes or no? Um, or let's have a conversation about that because I think you can get so stumped by like analysis paralysis and just like, oh, which step do I take next? Because like you said, um, as someone starting a program, you are starting a business, you're facilitating, you're doing program design. Um, there's so, so much in that. And it is very scary thinking that you might drop the ball on something as well too and then let somebody down. I know that's something that really like eats away at me is thinking about, you know, as the programs grow, do I have the systems in place to be able to look after everybody and make sure that we don't um, forget about people and, and drop them through the cracks? Because at the end of the day, if we're running trauma-informed programs, we're working with vulnerable people. So I feel like the, I guess, the onus, the responsibility is even stronger than it would be if we were working with general population or if we weren't making promises to be trauma-informed. I think that's something that really can't be taken lightly. Mm. Um, and like, I love your program that you've designed. It's so great. Um, like yeah, all so. of the things that you're doing are so, so really thoughtful and truly trauma-informed. And obviously I'm biased because I know you're <laughs> using our, like our modeling in a lot of that, but I have seen more lately of people using the terms trauma-informed and what they mean by that is they have lived experience um, and that is important and it's so valuable and I think that you know nothing about us without us is it should be a really core tenant to all the work that we do but it's not enough on its own because your experience is not going to be everybody else's experience and then I'm seeing outwardly things that I I, I will like flinch like genuinely recoil because you've added the label trauma-informed and you didn't have to you could have just said you know I'm someone who's been through this and I'm here teaching martial arts but mm -hmm. because you're trauma-informed you really do have a strong I think onus of responsibility and I do look forward to seeing what happens in the next sort of five years or so with collaborations particularly between Australia the UK and the US um around what and, and Canada, I would say, are the really big players, but there's always people popping up in other places as well too, um, about what that really looks like and getting more international recognition around. Regulation, yeah. Yeah. 
because anyone can say they're trauma-informed at the moment, unfortunately. And, and I guess, isn't it, it's like, well, what does that mean to people? And if someone said it to me, trying to put my psychology experience aside, I'd be thinking, oh, I'm going to feel safe here. Someone's going to be, like, considering me. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think it's really important as a facilitator to think about what you're opening up to when you say trauma-informed, being clear about what you're offering, I guess, and what, and what you aren't. Um, and and what you're going to need to make space for and support in in your classes, like are you, and asking yourself that question: Are you ready for that? Like, do you want mm -hmm. that? What's your emotional reaction going to be? Going back to what we said earlier, how are you going to look after yourself? Yeah, we've spoken a lot about that, and I've spoken about that with people who. I mean, a common reason why someone will want to start a trauma informed program is because of their experiences, because of their lived experience, right? Um, and there's no perfect timeline and I don't think there's like a, a measure of being like, well, now you're healed enough to be ready to take, you know, to work with other people. But the general measure is, is that do you get swept in when somebody is emotionally overwhelmed? Um, and I think, you know, particularly I work with a lot of women who want to step into the coaching space. And for a lot of women, their experiences and, and part of their coping strategies are to appease. Um, and so we've really struggled to be able to sit with somebody's discomfort in a class. And when you're working with a group of people, if that happens and one person's uncomfortable, you're going to be really distracted by that one person's discomfort. And they might even be like, this is how I am a few times a month, once a month, I just get really down and just like, you know, it's nobody's fault. That's just like the way my mental health is. And, you know, like that might be the whole narrative that's going with them or any number of things. But if you can't stay centered enough to also be aware of everybody else um, and to pull the energy upwards, if that's pulling the energy down and there's lots of little things like that, you just need to have a lot of um, presence to be able to do that and um, really like I, I say a lot right the hallmark of trauma is not being able to be present is either predicting what might happen in the future or being stuck in the past mm. and so if clients are able to pull you into predicting what might go further wrong or being stuck in what's happened to you in the mm. past then you're not present for the people that you're working with um, like you, you might need a second facilitator or some more time I like what you said about like being present um, and having a presence to kind of lift lift up the energy in the room, right? Um, yeah, just thinking about that um, and how how you do that uh, as a facilitator. Because I was thinking about my experience in my first session. Mm -hmm. It's quite strange. I started to embody what I felt like I used to embody when I used to perform, like dancing a bit. I say perform, like there was no like professional, but like <laughs> I did like a few performances, and my body would go into some different zone, um, which was a helpful zone. Like, but it felt like I had a presence, um, and that kind of makes sense because it's. I guess for me, it gets about energy, isn't it? It is. It's about using your energy. Um, and that presence to balance what's going on in the room and what I really notice and how I use mine and I guess that like we're all individual aren't we is body um I'm doing this with my with my arms and my hands I guess it's like expressing isn't it mm -hmm. um, and voice um I think voice and like the tone is like a big one mm -hmm. isn't there? and volume yep 
all of those things, right? Because sometimes you're going to need to bring the energy up in the room. Sometimes you need to bring the energy down. They're all examples of co-regulating. Um, and it really is like dominoes as well too. Like the more practiced you get at this, the better that you get. I'm by no means perfect, but in general, in some situations, I will lean on maybe the, the client in the class who is in a state at that moment that's closest to where it would be productive for us to continue learning if the energy has dropped and this person um, maybe seems like, you know, you can feel um, this person's going to be quite receptive if I invite them to demonstrate a kick that I know that they're particularly good at and that can sometimes bring the energy up. Um, or sometimes it might go the other way. You might pick the person in the room who's struggling the most and you might, again, lean on one of their strengths pivot the class towards that and help bring, um, you know, bring the class up by helping them express their power. You know, it might be that, for example, let's say you've been learning how to do hooks in the class and hooks are often like somewhat difficult for people to get their head around because it's got a big foot pivot, hand movement, like the distancing away from your body can be tricky for people to work out. There's lots of like components to it as opposed to a cross, which I think a lot of people pick up pretty quickly. Um, and so you might switch gears and go back to something that's more within people's strengths and help uplift them from there. And then you might, you know, build in a combination that's got a hook. And you you really do just get practice at doing that when you can feel in the class where, and sometimes as a facilitator too, it's difficult for us to always know how things are going to land. So sometimes I'll be like, all right, everyone, I've got a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Let's just like <laughs> preface it with that. But I think you're up for it. At any point, if you want to regress it, we can regress it. Um, but honestly, I think this is going to look harder than it really is. Like, are you willing to give it a try? Yes, they are. And sometimes it totally backfires. Like, sometimes people get super flustered. They can't get out of the flustered state. And I'm like, I have progressed them too quickly. It's just like being an exercise scientist and working with a client where you increase their weight before they're ready for it and not necessarily going to say to the client like oh I really messed up here and like I didn't periodize properly and we're, we're going to deload next week because I, I you know I mucked up you might but typically you just be like okay like they're going to be a bit extra sore for a couple of days in terms of their muscles no permanent damage but like then we're going to regress um, not in a bad way, but we're just going to strip some weight back off and build it back up from there. And it's the same thing with like martial arts classes where you do get a lot better over time at reading the room, you know, knowing what everybody's got in their toolkit, where they're at, how you can increase things so that they feel accomplished. Because I find that at the end of the class, one of the most common positives people will share about what went well is when they learned a new thing. I really liked learning this new thing or I was really good at doing, you know, this combination was hard, but I did it. Having something that's just out of reach and then being able to achieve that is really powerful for people. If you're just always repeating things that are within their comfort zone at a certain point, they're going to be like, I don't really feel like I'm improving. I'm a bit meh about it they mm. might not be but they they definitely can be so that i think is the the art side of being a facilitator is feeling the energy in the room helping everybody co-regulate whether they need to co-regulate up or down and it does vary i'm yoinking that i'm sealing it i like it thanks <laughs> absolutely <laughs> please please um I am mindful of our time. I just want to circle back to anger 
Um, I think anger is such a central part to the work that we do, particularly when we run women's programs, right? Um, one of the really commonly cited reasons why women will reach out, reach out to me and I know connect with martial arts is they're like, I have anger. I want to release that anger. What do you think about that and how can we work with that? Oh, what a question, Georgia. I like it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I I get really excited when women talk about their anger. Actually, mm. um, I I think anger is great. I think it gives us so much. I think it's such an important emotion. I think in British culture, we definitely try and like suppress it. We're not the most expressive as a culture. My half half my heritage is Italian. My dad's Italian, um, so I've grown up with quite like different experiences. I guess in a way of like. You know how expressive one side of my family have been um mm -hmm. you know arguing one minute and then <laughs> absolutely fine the next um to yeah the the opposite on the other side um and i but i think i think anger is so important and particularly for women um going back and circling back to what i was talking about earlier about how women are socialized which i've always had an interest in um I think a big, not obviously all of it, but a big part of difficulties with women's mental well-being and their mental health difficulties is suppressed emotion. Um, one of the big emotions being anger. Um, because as women, one of the main roles that we've been given and been socialised and rewarded and kind of reinforced for doing is nurturing. Mm -hmm. um, and anger isn't seen as part of that. Anger doesn't, it's not seen as having a home there. Be a nice girl, be, um, be a good girl um and it's like our anger just has no place or, or say in that so when women are having a conversation about their anger and wanting to do something with it gets me excited because i think oh okay you you want to do something with this you don't want to shove this down you've you've noticed you've got this you want to get it out and for me that's a really exciting thing to hear because it i think what it says to me is this person is on the start of a of a journey of something really beautiful of of owning their feelings and there are amazing things that happen for us when we start to do that and i think what i really like about anger is it can really bring back that energy for people it definitely did for me that we don't have when we push it down like anger helps us like take action it helps us get stuff done be passionate stand up for what we believe in um and that's a big part of the project for me of being able to do that for women but doing that in a safe way because it's tricky, isn't it? And I think for, for lots of people as well, they've had, you know, I've been in forensic services. I know what it's like when people have a very, really conflicting relationship with anger. If through, say for example, when they've shown their own anger and it hasn't gone very well and they've ended up getting aggressive or they've seen a lot of people get angry around them and that's led to horrible things happening, like people getting hurt. Um, so for me, being able to offer a safe environment and a safe way to process connecting with that feeling and using that energy um, is is really cool. Um, and I think it's so, so important for women, but it's easy to, um, it's pacing that as well, because I guess depending on how, how long someone's been holding down those feelings, if they just start all of a sudden connecting with them, they can end up getting completely overwhelmed, right? I know, mm -hmm. you know this Georgia um so starting to do it in a paced way is so so important and that's really difficult 
and for me I think that starts with the person starting to really get to know their body and it's that window of tolerance thing isn't it and knowing when they've gone a bit too far bringing it back down this is what for me is so cool and um, powerful about the trauma-informed martial arts because it's a it's a way to help people um, build that relationship back up with their bodies again that they've that they've just lost through losing themselves and i really truly believe in that thing of you know find your body find yourself yes yes so much yes and i think like when i was so new to this work um i like always cringe at how like i learned a lot by working with clients right i didn't do a course to start with so i started working with clients pretty early in one-on-one -on -one and in group capacities um and and really early on clients would say like i'm here because they want to work on anger and i'll be like great and then i'll be like all right we're gonna hit the bag and we're gonna like think about something that you're mad about which at, at the surface seems like great idea it's a terrible idea right um and i really nowadays liken that to um being a facilitator standing at the front of the class and yelling at everyone to push like keep pushing keep working don't give up right again it's so well-meaning we think that we're helping but we're taking away people's autonomy and what i have found is that if somebody comes to me and says you know i want to do trauma-informed kickboxing because i want to release my anger they don't need me in the class to say Think about something that's made you angry and then bring it up because it's there like it's bubbling away and depending on what's happened you know during that day whether it's related to work or family or something that's happened a lot of times people will come in and they'll bring that in themselves but they don't actually need me to stir it up any more than it already is it's just going to come forward and by the end of the class they'll say i really needed to hit something today i was really angry and i'm glad that i got to do that that's independent of me articulating around the anger me adding words to that all they need to do is be in a space where they can move and they're allowed to move mm -hmm. and and i think that is so like we just feel like as facilitators like we have to be guiding everything and like you know giving all the instructions and like that's why we're getting paid to be there and stuff but actually you're just like holding space and as you were talking like that really solidified it for me like it is that distinction between again like yelling at someone to push themselves and just letting them push themselves however much they want to and telling someone to get mad or just letting them experience their anger but that is i can i can really relate to that from when i did my classes to train for the charity fight because it was that that was how you'd get fired up is kind of what we'd call it they'd say think about someone that's really made you feel mad or you know come on like get angry um and you know i guess it kind of made sense and it was functional kind of in that context because it was really difficult for me to hit people because i sit and listen to people and care for people all day it was really mm. difficult at the beginning i i soon got over that and enjoyed it um <laughs> but um that it's really different isn't it and yeah particularly when there's so much in the body working with that carefully but it's no it, it's it's not perfect and and i guess that for me i've had to think about owning that too and I, it's felt better to say to people because i think i heard someone say on oh, the shape your life project i think it was someone that you interviewed because kathy on your on your podcast i really liked yeah. that one i listened to that and she was saying that she says to people you know you will get triggered mm -hmm. this will happen and i think it's right 
I mean, that, that makes sense. And it's being honest, isn't it? You know, this is going to happen. You are going to confront difficult feelings in your body. This is going to be a bit scary at times, but we have got the tools and we're set up in here to help you with that, which is, which is the difference. Yes, yes. And that, that was when, that was like eight episodes into this podcast or something like that. So it was very fresh for me. And I was like, how do I make sure nobody gets triggered in my class? Because to me, that was like the number one priority is no one gets triggered ever. Um, and that's where she said, you know, like you could get triggered on the subway. You could get triggered walking the street. Better that you get triggered here where you're going to be surrounded by people who are going to hold space for you than in public where people um, are just not going to be able to help you, you know. And I think that, again, comes back to what we are talking about before, about you do need to be ready as a facilitator to hold space for that, right? It's not your job to create a space where people are rock wrapped in cotton wool and that nothing bad ever happens although like I say to my clients it is quite rare when you're working invitationally and you're inviting people to try things rather than telling them what to do that they will become overwhelmed because they know they can opt out before it becomes too much but mm -hmm. we're not just trying to make sure no one gets triggered ever mm -hmm. um, because I think that then goes too far the other way and yeah it's an interesting dance and it's kind of like we said before about how do you um address the energy in the room how do you pull it up and down you get better at being able to feel feel into it and I think that sometimes you know we couldn't be embodied practitioners without saying like just see what feels right with introducing anger just see what feels right you know or if it just feels right to you then it's probably okay and you don't have to add words all the time that's kind of my long-winded way of saying like I don't feel like I have the perfect solution to that because sometimes when people ask me like I'm here to try and find a way to like release my anger am I going to be able to do that here I even still feel a bit like uncomfortable with that question and I wonder sometimes how much of that is my socialization how much of that is just like my fear around being able to hold that container around making sure that um you know particularly if we're doing partner work that there's not a mismatch in terms of people's expectations for releasing anger um uh, all of these things with with working in groups, but I mean that's what keeps it fun and interesting, I suppose. <laughs> and and we've got to own our anxiety, haven't we? We've got to own like what, which is you know, like you say, it's talking about that because you know we are part of the process. We've got to think about how how those things are making us feel. So so we can think about how we meet our needs in 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 the class as well. So we can be present um, and deal with the with the energy in the room. Um, and our needs are just as important um and it's so helpful for us to be modeling that too right um for the people that we work with and you said something else georgia that i was going to speak to you said something really really interesting <laughs> i can't remember um but i'm yeah i'm just been really excited to kind of do this podcast with you um and it's just felt lovely to be able to talk about i mean i could talk about this stuff forever mm. um but this it's so exciting and i think that they're um uh, there's so many opportunities and I feel like it's going to grow I think you know going back to what you're saying about trauma-informed kind of environments it's really catching on isn't it trauma-informed gyms um stuff like that and I know that you I think you guys have opened the gym we're getting close getting close you're getting close and that's really exciting um because I think I think it has so much to offer and I think you know with the NHS at least here with the state that it's in um you know, we need to be thinking creatively about how else can we support people. I've always been a big believer in 
well, why aren't we investing more proactively in like supporting people? Why are we being reactive? Like, why aren't we, you know, thinking about initiatives like this and supporting people to to live well so that they can meet their needs rather than just getting to a point where they've deteriorated so much and and in a bit of a hole. It just doesn't make sense. Yes, yes, yes. And I feel like we just went almost full circle back to looking after yourself as a facilitator. And I mean, like my undertone through why don't we look after people while they're well instead of waiting till they get sick is like we're talking about before as unfortunately capitalism is still alive and well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we could literally talk about this for hours, but we're basically out of time. So if anyone has any particular questions or things that you'd like us to dive deeper into, I'm super open to that. You can leave a comment on YouTube or message me on Instagram or um, I think you can comment on Spotify even now. Yeah, um, yeah, you can. So let us know if there's anything else that you would like us to speak more to. Uh, but Georgina, how can people catch up with you online? Um, so, I mean, I'm in the, I've excitingly bought a website domain, but I haven't gone live yet. <laughs> Just figuring out how to build the website. Going to have some fun with that. Um, and um, it will mainly be Instagram. So it's warrior underscore women, but the E is a three. Um, yeah, that's probably the main way at the moment Perfect. post all the updates on there so I look forward to hearing from anyone if they want to find out a bit more absolutely and we'll thank put you the very link to that much. in the show notes thank you thank you very much for having me and thank you for for all of your support georgia you're an absolute diamond it's a pleasure always thank you for being part of the club we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to get in touch please refer to the information in the show notes if you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. Nobody if you'd like me, to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari Saga. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. To many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious, meets. We're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress. Testament to all contenders Forgot what it was like to have control over self Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth 
forget that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles They can't cage me, they can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up I'm not looking for clovers cause I don't believe in luck Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly Why thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me Cause I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be The positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?